0: All right. Well today we're we're still not gonna go back to Luke and this is probably gonna happen for a couple more weeks after this. This is getting fun. A lot of people talked to me last week about what I said. I think some people after they heard me say something just shut down and didn't hear anything else. Say, go back and listen to the tape one more time and just make sure you listen to the whole sermon this time. But we're taking a break from the Gospel of Luke to just talk about Christian liberties. And and this is a great topic, but it's a lot more complex than most people realize. You know, when you decide that you're going to do something or not do something as a Christian to exercise a certain liberty or not, um, it's just not a matter of deciding. There's a lot of factors that come into play. And and a lot of these factors, uh, apparently, a lot of people aren't um, aware of. And again, we're not talking about when we say Christian liberties, we aren't talking about, you know, having a glass of milk Uh, that doesn't fall into a Christian liberty because Christians and non-Christians don't care if Christians drink milk. What we're talking about is we're, we're talking about things that the Bible doesn't specifically forbid, which you may or may not be able to do, um, You know, depending on uh, your own personal convictions, but the Bible doesn't forbid it and yet maybe the church you're in or the culture you're in says that certain behavior is wrong. And so there's a question as to whether or not you should exercise this liberty of yours or not. And so those are the kind of things that we're talking about, things like uh, smoking and drinking and tattoos and dancing and men wearing earrings and being involved in politics and TV and uh, movies and, and just engaging in or not engaging in activities which, you know, the Bible doesn't specifically address either by biblical mandate or clear biblical principle, but there's, you know. Things in Christianity or in the culture which say, oh, some people have a problem with that. So, how do you exercise your liberties in Christ? And that's what we're looking at. And last week, we began to look at just different things that motivate people. Uh, uh, You know, we talked about the glory of God. We talked about uh, biblical mandates, about biblical principles, about personal convictions, those rules you form for your life, which you. Decide that you're going to do or not do something because you have an area of weakness or you've had some experiences with that or you don't want to cause somebody else to stumble or you want to achieve a certain goal or whatever you have a reason it's not a biblical mandate, and it's not even derived from uh, clear biblical principles, which say you have to do it, although it may be founded upon biblical principle, you you just form these convictions. So we all should be motivated by the glory of God and biblical mandate and biblical principle and personal convictions. But it's not all that simple because depending on how much you know of the Bible, depending about how much you've studied the Bible, how uh trained you are in interpreting the bible and how much you have studied certain texts of the bible will determine how you form your convictions and also the culture and the pressures and also the people around you and since these factors are different for every one of us then a lot of times we're going to come up with differing convictions and so in a congregation like this, some of you might do things that you think, there's nothing wrong with this. The Bible doesn't say anything about this. And yet other people say, I could never do that. Well, why is that? Well, for all those different reasons. But having said that, even if you are free to exercise a liberty, you have to realize that liberty is... Can become sin if they get to the place where they violate biblical mandate or they violate your conscience or they cause somebody else to stumble, for instance, um, you may feel like you can drink all alcohol, but the Bible strictly forbids getting drunk. The problem is is what is that? the bible doesn 't say what the alcohol count must be, and so you have to decide even if you think drinking 's okay. If you're going to drink or not, and what drunk is, and any other factors that come into play. You know, you may feel like I have a right to watch TV, and you're fine with that. But you know what? You never have a right to watch pornography. That is clear from the scriptures. You have maybe a conviction that it's okay to dance. But you can't dance if that dancing is erotic and sensual or cultic. So dance may be okay, and you may be able to say, well, Psalm 50 says, but hey, there are certain kinds of dance which would be off the radar for a Christian. So now what we're doing is is we're kind of working through this, and we've gone through these first four motivations, and now we're getting to the dark side of what motivates those who profess to know Christ. There are certain motivations which are just ungodly, and we're going to look at one more this morning i was hoping to get two more in but this is such a great one we'll just i'm just going to go slow until we get all this and i know it causes some grief to some of you i know some of you are out there thinking what about what about we're going to get there we're going to get there I'm, i want you to know i'm going to beat this thing into the dust but we want to go slow so that we have a thorough understanding so the fifth And ungodly motivation for doing things as a professing believer is legalism, legalism. And from my conversation with Christians through the years, I've discovered that a lot of people have no idea what a legalist is. As a matter of fact, I've been accused of being a legalist a lot of times because I tell people they need to obey the Bible. That is not a legalism. Most people understand one kind of legalism, which is the most blatant and obvious form. And that is when you think that you can achieve righteousness before God or salvation by works. That is one form of legalism. If you are out there and you think you're going to get to heaven because you're good, you're not getting to heaven until you realize you're bad and you can't earn your way to heaven. I've talked to people who profess to be Christians, who say they believe in Christ, who are able to say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe his death on the cross for our sins. I believe he was buried and rose again on the third day. And yet, if I were to ask them, so tell me, um, why are you going to heaven? Then out of their mouth comes, well, you know, I've tried to be a good person. I've never murdered anybody. And I've tried to read my Bible. And all of a sudden, all these works start flowing out of their mouth. That tells me right away, this person is a legalist. This person is relying on and trusting in their works to save them. That's legalism. And you know what? These people, a lot of them think they're saved because they agree with the facts. But because they have never repented of their sin and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, because they have never really been born again and they just know the facts and give mental assent to the facts, when you talk to them about are you going to heaven or how do you become a Christian or how do you know you're going to heaven, they usually default to the works that they have done, the good deeds they have or are doing. People like this are legalists, plain and simple. And if they don't repent and give their life to Christ, I don't care how much good doctrine they know, they're going to hell. Romans three twenty three and 24 make it clear. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The first thing there is this. Everybody sins and deserves hell. So we're all on an even plane there. And God justifies us as a gift. He is active. We are passive. He justifies us. We receive his justification. He does it by as a gift, which means we don't earn it or deserve we just it's just a gift a gift is something just freely given to you and by grace something unearned and undeserved and all of this is through the redemption that is the purchasing of us in Christ Jesus which is something Jesus does, does not us that's that's crystal clear Ephesians 2:89 is another one for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God it is not a result of works that no one should boast Again, for by grace. Grace is something unearned, undeserved. You have been saved. Passive, participle, passive verb there that says you have had this happen to you. You aren't doing this. This You receive salvation is what that means. And it's through faith, which is defined as not of yourself. And it is the gift, something you don't earn or work for, and not a result of works. I mean, it can hardly be any clearer than that. Five things in two verses. First, 2 Timothy 1.9 speaks of God who has saved us, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. You didn't even exist then. Titus three, five says he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy spirit. You know, I've never talked to anybody who said, you know, I know that I'm going to heaven because man, I've sinned hard. (laughs) They always appeal to what they always appeal to their good works. You know, well, I've been a good person. I've tried to read my Bible. I've served in a one I've, you know, folded bulletins or whatever. You know, I've been a good person. I've never murdered anyone. But what does Paul tell Titus? That he did not save us by deeds which we have done in righteousness. Did not save us because of that. So if you are out there and you're thinking, yeah, I know all the facts of the gospel. I know who Jesus is. I know all the doctrines of Christianity. But in your heart, you know you're going to heaven because you've been good you're not going to heaven yet because you are a legalist. That is a damning thought and a delusion by the works of the flesh. No one will be justified before God, period. The second form of legalism is when a person tries to keep all of God's commands, but doesn't really have any love or devotion to God. This is another form of legalism. Maybe a person from early childhood has been drilled into them pounded into them the gospel they've gone to awana they've learned all these scriptures by rote they have accumulated quite a bit of sound doctrine and they can even defend their doctrine from the scripture but they don't know christ they are sound in their knowledge of doctrine but they aren't saved They have grown up in the church. They have been catechized in the truth from a young age. They know the data. They know the Christian jargon. They know how to fit in with Christians. And they even like coming to church because they've always gone to church. Turn to Isaiah 29. Isaiah chapter 29. We'll see some people just like this. Isaiah 29. In the preceding context, we're going to be looking at verse 13. In the preceding context... God is promising judgment on Israel. And verse 13 is the reason why. And keep in mind, we're talking about Jews living in Israel who have the law of Moses, who have the prophets, who have the temple and are worshiping in the temple. Now, these people are high speed religious people. Verse 13. This is why I'm going to judge them because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Sure. They had the word of God. Sure. They had the prophets. Sure. They had the Jewish history and culture and customs and language and temple, but they didn't know God. Very religious unsaved people. They were practicing cold dead orthodoxy learned by rote. They had all the right answers, but their heart wasn't in it. This is another form of legalism. Turn over to Ezekiel 33. A couple books to the right. Ezekiel 33 where Ezekiel speaks to those who are have been left behind after the first the the When Israel was taken captive to Babylon, it happened in three stages. And so one stage has happened, and some are left. And I think they're thinking that they're pretty cool stuff, because obviously we didn't take, get taken captive, so we're pretty good. I mean, they didn't know the other captivities were still on their way. The other stages of it. But look at verse 30 of Ezekiel 33. But as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, come now and hear what the message is, which comes from the mouth or comes forth from the Lord. That is through Ezekiel. Just stop there for a second. These people were into good preaching. Ezekiel was a good preacher. You know he was. And we're going to find out he was, even if you don't know that. These people... Like to come and hear the word of God proclaimed hard, convicting. But you know what? They did it for the wrong reason. They're kind of like those monks who cut themselves or slash themselves or beat themselves with ropes with knots tied in it just so they can hurt, just so, you know, they're thinking that, well, if I hurt, it must make me good or godly or holy before God or, you know, God's going to like me better if I hurt myself. Well, that's what these people are like. Let's go get hurt by Ezekiel. Look at verse 31. And they come to you as a people come, and sit before you as my people, and hear your words, but they do not practice them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. Notice, they sit as God's people. They sit before God's prophet, and they listen to him, and they like it. Look at verse 32. I love the description here of Ezekiel's preaching. Uh, He must have been very eloquent. Behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. So when it comes to pass, that is the judgment, he said in the near context, as surely it will, then they will know that a prophet has been in their midst. You go through the religious motions, you go to church, you partake in communion, you do a little giving, you read your Bible, you pray at meals, you do it over again, week by week, month by month, and your heart isn't in it, you're a legalist. I'm telling you, if you call yourself a Christian and you don't have a passion for God, emotions for God, zeal for God, something's wrong. Something's really wrong. You need to be like the psalmist or Jesus who quoted, who quoted the psalm that zeal for thy father's house has consumed me. Does that ever happened to you? Just feel passionate about things of the Lord? Or is it just, you know, this is what I do. This is my behavior. I'm a Christian, so I go through these motions. Zeal, says Puritan Thomas Watson, is a mixed compound of love and holy anger. Do you have that? Do you have emotions for God? Passions for God? Zeal for God? Jesus said in John that the father was seeking worshipers who worshiped him in spirit. That is from their innermost being and truth. Not just according to the word of God, but according to the word of God with all their emotions and their heart and their mind and their soul. Remember, we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. There's passion there. There's zeal. There's desire. If you come to church and sit in the pew every Sunday and then go home unaffected and work all week and go through your normal routine and come again and do the same, drop some money in the plate, sing the songs, hear the sermon, get convicted, go away, and still not obey God, You're practicing cold, dead orthodoxy. It's legalism. And third and finally, legalism can be the practice of trying to force your personal convictions on somebody else. And this is the form of legalism that I wanted to focus on this morning. I just want to get those other two out of the way. Because this form of legalism is what really comes into play when you start talking about Christian liberties. This one here is when there's certain people legalists in the church who make a big stink when you do something that isn't sinful. Now, I'm not talking about biblical commands. I'm not talking about clear biblical principles. I'm talking about issues in the scripture that you know the Bible doesn't speak against, which your conscience is clear about doing, and you do it, and somebody else thinks you're sinning because you do it. And they tell you, and they condemn you, and they judge you because you're sinning. This is a form of legalism. It's personal convictions run amok people have these convictions and pretty soon these convictions are elevated to where they become as authoritative as scripture. I don't smoke. You can't smoke. I don't drink any alcohol. You don't drink any alcohol. I don't watch any TV. You don't watch any TV. I don't send my kids to public school. You can't do the same. I don't listen to secular music. You can't listen to secular music. I don't have any tattoos. You can't have any. Get them lasered off. See, I create personal convictions for myself and then all of a sudden I start telling you that you have to have my personal convictions and if you aren't, you're sinning. That's legalism. And in reality, I'm adding to the word of God. I am taking things not found in the scriptures and I am saying, no, the scriptures forbid this clearly when they don't. And not only that, I'm judging somebody for not obeying something that isn't in the word of God. And you know who were really good at this? The Pharisees. So turn to Matthew 15. Matthew chapter 15. The Pharisees had this down. They were good at this whole convictions run amok thing. Matthew 15 verse 1. Look there. Then some of the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. I'll just stop there. There is no command in the law of Moses that says everybody has to wash their hands before dinner. There isn't one, it doesn't exist. Now, there is a command in Leviticus chapter 22, verses 6 and 7, which says that if you are a priest and you are serving in the temple and sacrifices are offered and you could eat those sacrifices, you must wash your hands before eating those holy offerings. Now, you can see how the Pharisees, though, might have derived their conviction and eventually their tradition from this. Maybe they reasoned themselves, you know... Why did God put that in Leviticus 22, 6 and 7? Obviously, uh, that dirt is defiling. And if it defiles the priests, surely it would defile us. And so if the priests have to wash their hands before they eat the holy sacrifices, then why would we not wash our hands before we eat our food? Because if the dirt defiled them, then the dirt would file us. And so if we eat with dirty hands, we get it on our food and we eat it, then we'll be defiled and that's bad. Therefore, let's not... Ever eat without washing our hands? Personal conviction. Then it's done so long that it becomes a tradition. Now you break the tradition and you're sinning because you you don't washing your hands. That's exactly what's happening here. And it's very logical. It's very reasonable. And it's very based on a text. They got their verse. You know, I have people tell me that. Well, I, I know a verse. Okay. Um, what's the context? Look at verse three. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father and mother, Whatever I have uh, that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father and mother. And by this, you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So they have a problem because the disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat. Jesus says, well, why do you keep your tradition so that you violate the word of God, the commands of God, biblical mandate? And what Jesus is talking about here is this. The the Jews had another tradition and the tradition was this. I mean, the Pharisees did that. When you had all your wealth, you should dedicate everything you have to the Lord. Doesn't that sound pious? Everything I have is the Lord's. But they were also the self-appointed caretakers of everything they had devoted to the Lord. And they didn't give it away. They kept it. But they said it was dedicated. That way, they could spend and do anything they want with what they were caretakers of for their own personal and selfish reasons, but when mom and dad were down and out and living in the street, I'm sorry, mom, I'm sorry, dad, even though I have this great wealth, I, I can't help you because it's been dedicated to the Lord. And that was one of their traditions. And so Jesus quotes the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. And then he also quotes Leviticus 21:17 and 29, or Leviticus 29, which says that if you do evil to your parents, you need to be put to death. And so he says, why are you upset at me because I'm breaking a tradition when you guys are sinning against biblical mandate that requires death penalty? That is legalism. And that is why Jesus said, and by doing this, you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Now look at verse seven, you hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. He quoted the very text we looked at already in Isaiah 29. Look at verse 10. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. The disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended? At this statement? What? That I called them hypocrites? That I turned over their teaching and showed how it was wrong? That I humiliated them and said that they were violating a biblical mandate that deserved the death penalty for their tradition? You mean that? And they were. They were legalists. They were elevating their man made traditions above the scriptures in this instance. They were also participating in the second kind of legalism and that they were going through the motions, but they had no love for God in their heart. Traditions learned by rote. Jesus then instructs the crowd in the truth. Dirty hands don't make you unholy. Sin in the heart makes you unholy. And all you need to do is replace dirty hands with any Christian liberty you can think of. Smoking, drinking, drinking tattoos, you know, dancing, playing cards. I mean, whatever you want to put there, just put it in there. Christian liberties don't make you unholy. Sin in your heart makes you unholy. I'm not talking about sinning in any way. I'm talking about exercising freedoms that may, the scriptures don't say anything about, or which you don't think they say enough about that it doesn't bother your conscience to do them. Now, what I want you to take note of, which we will bring up again in another message, is that Jesus knows his teaching is going to offend the religious leaders. He not only knows it's going to offend them, he calls them hypocrites and blind guides of the blind. And he calls them these names and says they deserve the death penalty and they're violating the word of God. He knows it's going to offend them and he offends them anyways. Now, when we get into some other texts which talk about Christian liberties, we're going to learn that you shouldn't do anything that offends or causes your brother to stumble, and yet Jesus isn't sinning here. Why? We're going to come back to that later. That is a fun one. But look at verse 13. But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. And let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And the blind man guides the blind man, both will fall into the pit. Notice that not only does Jesus offend them, call them hypocrites. He says, listen, if you even go in that direction, you're going to fall into the same pit of hypocrisy that they've already fallen into. Look at verse 15. And Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. The one about, you know... My father did not plant. I mean, it's a pretty simple thing. They just aren't of the father. Jesus doesn't explain the parable. He just tells him flat out. Look at verse 16. Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. In other words, Jesus says violating biblical mandates is sin, but not sinning against or violating some tradition. It wouldn't be sinning. Dirt on the skin, Jesus says, Isn't sin rebellion in the heart against the commands of God is sin. Dirt doesn't defile us. Rebellion in the heart defiles us. Breaking biblical commands defiles us, not breaking someone's conviction. The lesson to learn here is this. How about your personal convictions? I know all of you have personal convictions. A lot of you told me about them last week after last Sunday's sermon. Uh, What about, what about? I said, well, I'm just getting into the series, you know, chill. I'm I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'm going to cover all the text. You know, I'm going to do all the warnings and I'm not practicing, you know, libertinism here and just saying, you know, go out and do everything you want as long as your conscience is fine with it and with no regard to others. I'm not saying that what I'm saying here is this. I'm trying to teach a lesson here from the Pharisees. What happened is, is they had in their mind biblical justification for forming their tradition, but it was wrong. That's what I want to get to. And the question is, whatever you have in your mind justifies your convictions is it based on sound biblical interpretation or not that is the issue and i'm just going to use an example here and don't think don't think this example here is is because i'm advocating it i'm just using it as an example because this is a smoking we're going to talk about smoking And uh, I use this as an example because it's a great one. (laughs) Because different places you go, they think, what? No big deal. Christians are standing around smoking in other places. Like, you can't smoke. Uh, Last week I said during the first service that there's a certain Baptist seminary. that was given a very large painting of Charles Spurgeon. A big painting of Charles Spurgeon. It was old, valuable. The only problem is, as he sat there studying at his desk, he had in his hand a cigar. And they loved the painting, but the cigar was a problem. (laughs) And so they actually paid paid an artist to cover up the cigar and put a quill pen (laughs) in his hand. Because see, if you've never studied anything about Spurgeon, Spurgeon was a great cigar smoker, even so much so that the cigar shop near where he lived had Spurgeon brand cigars. (laughs) Oh <laughs> okay, so we're gonna let's talk about smoking <laughs> let's talk about smoking, okay, so you talk about smoking, so we say you can't smoke that smoking's sin why biblical justification because first corinthians three you might want to start turning there first corinthians three sixteen and seventeen says. Do you not know that you are a temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Now, there you go. There's your biblical precedent. Right there it says, if you destroy the temple of God, God's going to destroy you. Obviously, that's a sin. It says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, too. So we also know that cigarette smoking is harmful to you. And so if you're smoking, or cigars, or whatever you want, pipes, whatever it is, if you smoke, then that's going to hurt your body. And since hurting your body is a sin because God destroys those who hurt the body, therefore you can't smoke okay that's how the reasoning goes and i think most of you know that and i bet most of you knew that text and if somebody came up to you and said why don't you smoke you probably quote them that text but if they say where is that passage a lot of people don't know where the passage is and if you said to even to those oh it's in 1 Corinthians three someplace if you said what is the context almost no one knows the context And then fewer still, if you said, have you ever studied that passage in its context? (laughs) Fewer still have ever studied it. And we're talking about a hairbreadth of all the people in the church who have formed convictions off that text. So what I want to do is I want to look at that text. And I want to look at that text in its context. And I just want to show you, and again, other scriptures could be brought in. Again, I'm not saying this is the only verse that might apply to the conviction of smoking. What I'm saying is let's look at this one which is most oftenly referred to and see if it's all that good of a verse. Look at First Corinthians 3, 9 to begin with. What you need to know is that in this section, starting in chapter one, verse 18, all the way through the bottom of chapter one and chapter two and three, Paul is describing his methodology for doing missions. He's explaining how he determined to know nothing among them, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it was that message, the message of the gospel that brought people to salvation. And he describes himself as we shall see. As this master builder, who is by going around preaching the gospel for the first time to these places that have never heard it before, and bringing people to Christ, establishing churches, he's laying the foundation by preaching the gospel that other people then will come and build on this foundation he has laid. That's what he's talking about. But in First Corinthians three nine, we read this: "For you are, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building." Now, the you, which is used here, is plural, not singular. He is saying, you corporately, together, are God's building, not you individually. Okay? Keep that in mind. Paul goes on to describe himself as the master builder, laying the foundation by preaching the gospel in place after place in his missionary journeys, even at Corinth. And then comes the often quoted text in 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17. Do you not know that you are a temple of God, that the spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. When Paul says, do you, when he says that you, when he says dwells in you, and that is what you are, do you think the you's there are singular or Plural. Let me tell you, they're all plural. Mm. That makes a difference. The question is this. When Paul uses the plural form of you, which means all of you or you all, is he speaking corporately of the body of Christ? As in all of you together are a temple of God, you, plural, are holy that is what you are, a holy temple of God. Or is he saying you individually are? Well, in the near context, he's talking about building the church. And so pretty much every commentator says he's talking about the corporate thing here, not individual. Mm. That's That's a problem if you want to use this verse individually. So... Secondly, when Paul says, if anyone destroys the temple of God, is he saying, if anyone tries to destroy the church, or is he saying, if anyone tries to destroy an individual in the church, or is he saying, if anybody destroys themselves in the church, Again, the corporate idea is to be preferred. Thirdly, is Paul warning true believers not to destroy the church by failing to take care of their bodies? Do you think that was in the minds of the Corinthians? Hmm. The near context argues for the latter. Paul describes himself as a master builder laying the foundation of the church, others coming and building upon it. And if anybody goes in and tries to erode that foundation of the gospel, which is what the church is built on, which he goes on to describe as Christ, then God will destroy him. He's talking about false teachers undermining the gospel message. Look at verses 11 through 14, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, which of course, Paul already did. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Now, do you think Paul is talking about taking care of your physical body? Or... Talking about those who are teaching and either building upon the good foundation of the gospel that Paul laid or teaching contrary to that and bringing judgment on themselves. I think the latter. Now you may disagree and that's fine. The purpose here isn't not to, I mean, you know, if I was preaching on this, I would get a little bit more serious. But anyways, the whole point here is this. When you come to this text, you may at first, if you only read that text, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, don't destroy it or God will destroy you, you may by plucking that out of context or by hearing somebody else quote it, have formed a personal conviction on it, but you yourself have never even studied the passage. You don't even know the issues. You don't even know that most commentators say that it doesn't work for that. And yet here you are, you have this conviction and you may be looking down on other people who exercise a liberty because of a conviction based on a text which you've never even studied but even if it's agreed upon let's just say that every commentator you read said this is talking about individuals taking care of their bodies and if anybody in the church doesn't take care of their body god's going to destroy them okay let's just say that everybody agreed on that then we're in big trouble no more ice cream No more ice cream, no more butter on your toast, just eat her dry. No more salt on your french fries, no french fries. No more going outside without sunscreen on, no more going a day without exercising or drinking eight glasses of water a day. Have you ever tried that? That is miserable. And if you do do the eight glasses, make sure it doesn't have any chlorine in it. It's bad for you. See, the Bible says our outer man is decaying day by day. But listen, if you're trying to say here, if you harm your body in any way, you're destroying the church. I'm telling you, you better practice that principle across the board in your life before you start coming down on somebody else. And again, don't think I'm advocating smoking. I'm not. Please don't think I'm saying that the Bible doesn't teach us to take care of our bodies, that we can just abuse ourselves to no end and it doesn't matter. I'm not saying that. We're just looking at one text that people often turn to. I'm just trying to make a point here. But you need to make sure that whatever reasons you have for keeping certain rules in your life or not doing certain things or doing certain things, and even though the Bible doesn't say it specifically, you may feel very strongly about it, it may be based on biblical passages, but you better make sure you've studied those passages, especially before going to somebody else and saying, hey, you know, I have a problem here with your, you know, if... If, if you have a problem with some guy because he's doing something that's harming his body and yet you're, you're doing 12 other things that are harming your body, there's a name for that. In the Greek, it's hypocrites. And guess what word comes from that? Remember, if you elevate your personal convictions to the same authority as Scripture and you judge or condemn someone else, that's legalism. That's a bad thing. Paul had this happen to him. He talked about it in Galatians chapter two, verses four and five, where there were some Jews there, Judaizers, men who, who kind of, you know, received Jesus and said they believed in Jesus and, you know, they're kind of, you know, were saved by grace through faith in Jesus and kept by works type of people. And they were trying to bring Paul into bondage of the law. You, oh, you still have to keep the laws of moses you still have to keep the traditions of the jews and paul described it as them trying to put him under bondage and as we said over and over again personal convictions are good they're right you should have them and you should form them off of biblical principles in order to help you in the areas of your weakness and goals and all those things but they can run amok if they turn into legalism Now, you might be thinking, well, how does that happen? Let me just give you an example. A godly person is in the church, and he's a a godly person, you know, some godly, great godly man. He doesn't have a, you know, the, the smell of legalism on him. He is just a great guy, loves the Lord, and in order to avoid certain weaknesses in his life, in order to achieve certain goals, to excel still more, he's got all these rules in his life. You know, he just doesn't do certain things that a lot of people do, which, it's not that he's condemning them, but for him, it's not working because he's, he's got convictions. And this guy, because he is a mature, godly man, has other young men, and he disciples them, and, and they're watching him, and they notice he doesn't do things, so they decide, well, if our mentor so-and-so doesn't do anything, then we're not going to do those things. But think about this. Think about how different the motivations are between the godly man and his disciples. The godly man has formed his personal convictions based off of biblical principles, his own experiences, personal weaknesses, and goals, and the young men who are following him now are basing theirs because their mentor did it. Radically different. Now, these disciples then of the godly man then start discipling their own disciples. And they start saying, you know, you shouldn't do such and such a thing because that would be sin. I go, Why? Well, we don't do it and so-and-so doesn't do it and everybody knows how godly he is. And legalism is born. Legalism is born. And there's one thing legalists dislike the most. It's when they deny themselves some pleasure for the wrong reason and other people enjoy it. It just eeks them. You know, I I just can't believe that, you know, you're you're doing that. And inside they're going, I wish I could do that. (laughs) But they can't because they've taught their disciples that that's sin. And if they did it, they'd be a hypocrite. And so this is how personal convictions, which are good, become the nightmare of legalism. The solution then is to examine why you do what you do. To examine it carefully and to ask yourself, am I obeying biblical mandates or am i being biblical principles and whatever text i have that i'm kind of you know using to organize my life i mean have i ever studied those passages or am i just doing a cursory reading and plucking them out of context now let me close with this i'm not advocating smoking i just used it because it's a thing now if you want to smoke then you smoke before the lord um yeah, make sure your heart's right. Make sure that you, you know, aren't doing it in a way that makes somebody else stumble and all those things. But, whether, whatever the personal conviction is, that's not what I'm trying to teach you to go out and just, you know, splurge on all your liberties. And, and we've, been, we barely got into this. We still gotta deal with the last motivation, the one more dark motivation. And then we're gonna get into the text which actually tell us a lot of important things about how to exercise your liberty. So don't think that just because I'm kind of exploding some myths here, I'm doing this on purpose. I'm, you know, trying to shake your foundation. We're going to look at the text and we're going to find out that exercising liberty is not about you and what makes you feel good. It's about God and what's going to give him honor, what's going to help the proclamation of the gospel, what's going to help other people grow in their relationship with the Lord. And so those issues we haven't even begun to even look at yet from the scriptures. But don't go out and plunge yourself into every liberty excess and then say, well, Jack Hughes said so as I didn't my advice to you is if you're uncertain about this and I've raised a lot of questions in your mind then don't do anything until we get to the end of the series (laughs) and then you can say Jack Hughes said so because that will have said everything I want to all right let's pray Father, we thank you for your goodness, and Father, I just thank you for being able to study this topic. It is practical, and Father, it affects every one of us. Father, I pray that each of us here would make sure that there is no legalism in our own lives, and if there is, we would repent of that. I also pray for those of us who aren't sure about why we are doing certain things, or maybe if we've formed convictions based on certain scriptures we've never even studied, that we might this week go study those scriptures. Make sure they teach what we think they do. And Father, I pray that during this series we would continue to grow in holiness, that we would be a church that would avoid legalism and yet avoid being antinomians and liberals and, Father, people who just disregard clear biblical mandate and principles. Help us to judge one another according to the scriptures. Like you have said, when people do sin, maybe go to them and love and confront them. And yet, Father, when people don't hold our convictions, may we love them unconditionally, accept them, and realize that not everybody has to have the same convictions we do. And Father, in doing this, may we have a church which is united, Father, which is um, patient, and Father, which is encouraging and edifying to one another, that you might receive all the glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.